Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. Before we start the show, I just want to take a second to talk with you about Physician Outlook Magazine. This is a magazine that was created by physicians for physicians. It comes in a digital version, but I have to say that I love the print version when it comes in my mail every month. I'm just always excited to open it up and see what's going to be in there because it is just chock full of beautifully written articles. I love the art. They always feature cover art and on the back cover and also all throughout the magazine, art by physicians. There are paintings and photography and mixed media, and it's just amazing to see the talent that is out there. I love that it is uplifting and positive, and really it's all about physicians and patients. So I strongly recommend that you check it out. Just go to their website, physicianoutlook.com. And now we'll start the show. I'm Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined by my co-host and the co-author of our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Naran Alajba. Good evening. One of the strategic goals of the AANP or American Association of Nurse Practitioners listed on their website is for nurse practitioners to have pay parity. In other words, to be paid the same as physicians. Oregon became the first state to require that insurance companies pay nurse practitioners the same as physicians. And now proposed legislation would do the same in Washington state. To discuss the implications of pay parity in Washington and elsewhere, we are also joined by the past president of the Washington State Radiological Society, Dr. Pooja Voria. Dr. Voria, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. Naran, as a Washingtonian, this issue is near and dear to your heart. So tell us, start us out by telling us about this proposed legislation. Well, essentially, it, it actually was introduced by one of the senators that I have worked closely with before, not not since she's been elected, but prior to her election, she worked with me on the campaign to avoid closing one of our hospitals here locally. So I, I know her very well, and I'm surprised she didn't call me about this, being that we have done so much work on other aspects of equality and social justice. But she introduced a bill, essentially Senate Bill 5704, which is going to mandate state-regulated commercial insurance carriers reimbursed uh, nurse practitioners at the same rate for the same service, and I say same service in quotes, as uh, physicians provide. And so right now, it depends on what the insurers are doing. A lot of commercial insurers already reimburses the same. And I think that that's fine. This isn't about, I must be paid more 100%. I think what it's about is... As studies are now beginning to show, which we'll talk about later in the show, nurse practitioners' care is more expensive. And I think that's pretty much, it's been that way since 1974, since I was born, actually since you were born as well. We were both born the same year. So the first study compared costs, 1974, it takes a higher cost to provide the same care as physicians. And that's a fact. That's not like me saying or pulling this out of the sky. So I think the problem is if your insurers start to see that, then they have the ability to pay people who cost more less. And so I think that allows insurers to keep costs down. Look, I'm not in love with insurance companies either, like everyone else, but insurers, if costs go up, they're going to kick it back to people who are paying for insurance. So what is happening is Senator Randall is essentially committing the Washingtonians to pay more for their healthcare forever. And if commercial insurers have the leeway to pay people who cost more or less, I think it would keep costs down in the long run. And so that's why it bothers me so much. So Naran, is Senator Emily Randall, is she does she have a background in healthcare at all? Or what do you think is her rationale behind doing this proposal? 
I, you know, I'm really hoping, so I've got, I'm going to have a column coming out in two weeks uh, on it. And I held it because this last weekend was National Women Physicians Day and I ended up uh, profiling a trailblazing doctor. And so in two weeks, I'm going to write a column and our newspaper often invites legislators to write. And I suspect, I'm hoping she will respond and kind of share with me what her thinking is. But knowing her, she's a really bright young woman. She's really invested in social justice and equality, equality of race, gender, sexual orientation. I mean, I really actually have liked working with her. She's a a wonderful person. She does not have a background in health care. And I think what's probably happened is someone has gone to her and said, look, we're working in an urgent care as nurse practitioners and PAs and this doctor's working in an urgent care. And why aren't we being paid the same? Like injustice not to be paid the same. And I, I don't think she actually realizes that there is clear data showing nurse practitioner care costs more. They need more tests. They need more labs. They need more visits in order to do the job we're doing. And I, and I don't think that's even a bad thing. They have half the training, really 3%, but half the years, right? Even if you include everything at a, at a maximum, they have half the number of years of training. And so I, it, it makes perfect sense to me their care would be more expensive. So let's be transparent about that. To, to get equal quality or equal safety, it costs more. So why are we paying everybody the same? It, it doesn't make sense. And it, at the, the flip side is it disincentivizes becoming a doctor who is going to want to do this, you know, with all the debt and all the years when they can do it in half the number of years and a, a lot less detriment to, you know, our lives. We can have children, we can be married, we can work while we're going to get our um, nurse practitioner master's degree. You know, those are things I didn't have the option of doing in med school, right? We defer childbearing, we defer marriage, we defer our lives, we lose our 20s. And if it's not worth it anymore, then nobody's going to do it. Yeah, I think that's one of the unintended consequences that hasn't really been fully considered. Dr. Voria, tell us what your thoughts are on this legislation. Basically, with nurse practitioners, I mean, we know that they're valued healthcare provider partners and their skill sets are not interchangeable with physicians. Physicians have undergone significantly more extensive training and education. And I know on your prior podcast, we've discussed this before, but physicians required, you know, four years of medical school, and this is after undergrad, three to seven years of residency and about 15,000 hours of patient care hours. And these are grueling residency and fellowship hours. And on the other hand, nurse practitioners have two to four years of schooling. They don't have residency or fellowship, and they spend about 500 to maybe a thousand patient care hours and training. So the significance of the differences in training, they're real. That translates into what actually happens, you know, when patients visit either a nurse practitioner or a physician. The argument comes about where nurse practitioners want to be paid for equal pay for equal work. I would have to say that it's not equal work that we are doing. We're not doing the same thing as a nurse practitioner. All those years of training have to amount to something. And a lot of it is in our We can't show you what we're doing in our head when we are looking at the patient, when we are evaluating the patient. It can take us a lot less time to evaluate someone just because we've been doing it for years and years and years. And so, you know, it is a misnomer because a lot of the stuff that we do is intangible. So I'd like to give you an example. So, and this is the best analogy I could come up with, but basically, we have handyman and we have electricians. So if you have an electrical problem, sometimes you might call the handyman to come fix it. And sometimes you'll call an electrician and they both have vastly different experiences. You know, sometimes a handyman can actually get the job done and sometimes not. So why are we paying an electrician who's licensed, bonded and insured significantly 
more money than a handyman. It's easy. It's because of their training. It's because of the education. It's because we expect more out of them. So when we say that a handyman and an electrician are the same, you know, that's that's not true. So um, it's the same thing with us. When we have nurse practitioners say that they do the same work as a physician, it's not really the case on the I'm, surface, but it's not. Go I'm ahead. sorry to interrupt. I was just thinking like if you hire a handyman and something goes wrong with the electrical, you're going to burn your house down and, and, you know, you potentially can die. So I think that is a really apt comparison that you're making. Yes, maybe they could do the job. You maybe you'll pay them less and you just say, well, it's worth it. I'm going to take a chance. <laughs> and then, you know, your house burns down. But should that person be paid the same as somebody that is less likely to let your house burn down? Well, and I think Pooja's talking, she's mentioned some of it is intangible, which is true, but some of it is very tangible. So in my experience, nurse practitioners can't read x-rays, right? How about labs? Like interpreting a CBC, I'm dealing with four wrongful death cases right now involving different non-physicians care to children. They're all children, which is what's driving me crazy. And some of them are as simple as CBCs were overlooked. And iron was thrown at kids, even though that's really not what the problem was. And children die. And and the thing is, like you said, your house burns down. I mean, do you really want to take that risk? And I think a lot of it is tangible. They don't don't know how. They're not taught how to interpret labs. They're not taught how to interpret x-rays. And a lot of us in primary care, we do that all the time. I was always taught you look at every film yourself. And you don't, not that you don't trust the radiologist, but you are looking at the patient. So I have something the radiologist doesn't have. The radiologist just has a film. Their job is extremely difficult. I have a patient and a film. And so it's really important that we double check and, and kind of have that clinical piece. And if you don't have it, guess what? A lot falls through the cracks. Pooja, you have thoughts on the radiology example? I know you're a radiologist. Radiographs and x-rays are very difficult to read. I mean, it takes years and years and years of experience. So I agree. I think physicians should be looking at their own films, the non-radiologists, because it, it gives everyone a good perspective as to what is going on with the patient. I love calling our clinicians and asking them what's going on because I even call for negative cases because I need more history. I need more clinical advice as to what, what what's going on with the patient. And I think that together we do a great job when we work side by side and read these films together. And in California, when the nurse practitioners are trying to read or interpret x-rays, without any training, it makes no sense to me. We have to have people who are highly trained do what they need to do. Um, and we can't just have anyone willy-nilly. We just had a couple podcasts that are were about radiology. And what you say about x-rays being so hard to read is so mm-hmm. true because we've had radiology academicians saying, well, just let the non-physicians read the, the simple things like the chest x-rays and let the radiologists read the CAT scans and the MRIs. And it's like, hey, actually that chest x-ray might be harder to read than the than the CAT scan, right? Like a fracture with an MRI is going to light up like crazy versus a fracture on an x-ray. Am I right, Pooja? Absolutely. You are right. There are subtle things on a on x-rays that it takes years and years to understand and realize those subtle areas. There could be a tiny bump. There can be just a very subtle halo. You can have something that looks just like a basic, like a little whiteout. Just to read mammograms, we do one year of fellowship and that's what mine is in. I do breast imaging and that's, you know, a mammogram might look easy, but to find those tiny cancers, there are these little, little things that we have to keep looking for in every film. 
I couldn't do what I do without help from radiologists, right? They have an entire area of expertise that I don't have. And I think the piece I have is the clinical piece, right? I'm looking at the child and I can't tell you how many cases I reviewed where like some random person, often even non-physicians, some physicians will miscall a corner fracture and kids are removed from their homes. And then a month later, a radiologist gets it or, or repeats it or whatever and, and reads the film officially. And it's like, oh yeah, no, that was just a, a normal variant. No, no fracture. I mean, these are big mistakes. I don't even want to say big mistakes. And again, that's not to say the original was read by a radiologist. It, it usually wasn't. That comes later. And so what's interesting is if you're overcalling or undercalling, you still can do harm. And so we need the radiologist to do to know what they're doing, to have all that training, to be able to say, no, that's a normal congenital bone problem. That is not a corner fracture because those are two completely different things. And, and so there's consequences down the stream. And, and the shame is um, we have uh, abuse experts in Washington state that are nurse practitioners. They're family nurse practitioners. They're not pediatric. They don't have any training in child abuse. They don't have any certification and they're pulling kids from homes. And it's, it's really scary. It's such an area that requires experience and nuance and the, the consequences of those outcomes can be catastrophic. So you're so right. And I think it just comes back to this idea that people have this concept that things are, quote, easy. Oh, Mm -hmm. it's just an x-ray because x-rays have become so common and because radiologists are good at what they do. But it certainly is not easy. And and we have to remember that there's a reason why you go to school for all these years. You just can't take a shortcut. Now, Naran, you alluded to tangible differences. And you started talking about the cost of nurse practitioner care. And there was actually a new study that recently came out out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi, that was extremely fascinating and really spoke to this issue. Can you talk a little bit about that study? Yeah. So Hattiesburg Clinic is actually one of the top clinics, primary care clinics in the nation. Um, when you're looking at accountable care organizations. And, and the whole point of accountable care organizations was to try to provide appropriate primary care, preventative care to the to the largest number of people that we could. So Hattiesburg is, is obviously, you know, in Mississippi, and it's a state that doesn't have a lot of physicians. We're running out of physicians everywhere for a variety of reasons. But but anyway, so they hired a bunch of non-physician practitioners or what they call advanced practice providers. Um, I'm going to call them that because that's what they called them in the study. Not, I don't like the word provider for anyone, but I'm going to go ahead and use it. So they had hired about 150 um, advanced practice providers, they had 300 physicians uh, managing 30,000 patients. And they did a survey essentially and evaluated the care and the cost of care. And I want to be clear, the Hattiesburg Clinic really invested in their non-physicians as much as their physicians, right? They really wanted this system to work. And so they had every reason. They're almost like Mary, you know, when Mary did her Mundinger, when she did her study, I think she really believed that this can be done. And, and, you know, so again, I think Hattiesburg felt the same way and was invested in the outcome. And unfortunately, what they found is physicians provided the highest quality care at lower cost. And this is exactly when I read this study, I was like, 1974, 1974, like right back to that original study where they found costs were twice as high to provide the same quality compared to physicians. And that's always going to be the answer. I just want to stop you for one quick second, just to make a clarification. So in this study, the APPs had their own panel of patients. Correct. Versus a situation in which it's a partnership between a physician and maybe one or two APPs in which the physician would create a plan and then the APPs would follow up and then they would go back to the doctor. This was a, a system where they thought, let's let the APPs have their own panel of patients. They're qualified. They can handle it. 
they just let them go. And if they have questions, if they need anything, they can reach out to the physicians. Correct. This was a true, actual, first, large-scale, independent study or evaluation of independent nurse practitioners and physician assistants compared to independent patient panels with physicians. And by the way, the risk differences. So the physicians had higher or more risky patients, right? They gave really basic, really healthy, really kind of what we would call easy, right? What everybody talks about, doctors don't need a lot of training. It's easy. So they gave the easy patients to the non-physician practitioners or advanced practice providers. And what they found was essentially once you risk adjusted for the difference in patient need, the difference in cost was $119 more per member per month than the uh, than the patients cared for by physicians uh, exclusively. And that translated to 28, I calculated that myself, so for my own column, so $28.5 million annually. And that is, remember, 30,000 patients. So my community is 10 times larger. It's 300,000 people. So we are talking 10 times more expensive. In Washington state, when um, Senator Randall passes this, we are going to increase healthcare costs annually in my little tiny county with 330,000 people by $280 million, if that's possible. And so it's really, this is astoundingly appalling what's going on. And it, it's it doesn't make any sense. And we've proven it over and over. And again, it makes sense. They refer more often. In the study, the referral rate was 8% higher, and we see that all the time. And then they they referred their less risky patients. Remember, there's a risk difference here. So not even adjusting for that risk. They referred their easy patients 2% more often to the emergency room than the physicians did their hard patients. So you know, this is like a definitive answer, really. And I'm not just saying that because it's the way I would have predicted it would go. It's gone that way for the past 50 years of research. And it's just one more evidence-based piece of science. Yeah, it it was a really, really well done, very interesting study. And not only did it show that patients cared for by physicians ended up costing the healthcare system less money when physicians were involved, but also that physicians provided the highest quality of care. And out of 10 healthcare quality measures, physicians perform better on nine out of 10. And in some areas like influenza vaccines, they actually had double digit differences. So, I mean, I'm very proud of the doctors because clearly they were doing an amazing job of taking care of these patients. What do you think that's about? I, I'd love to know what your thoughts are because influenza, you and I are both primary care docs. So um, I think we spend all day long probably talking about influenza and COVID vaccines now. And I guess I'm just curious from your perspective, treating adults, because this was more adults than children. You know, what do you think? Why are doctors better at um, influenza immunization compliance rates? And Pooja, I'd be interested in your thoughts. I know you're a radiologist, but I'm sure you have some thoughts on this subject. You know, I'll just say first that um, in my residency as a family physician, we were trained, there was a mantra and it was health maintenance, every visit, every patient. And the idea was even if a patient's coming in for a laundry list of health conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, and then they tell you they have a cold and, and all these different things, you're still supposed to be thinking and identifying any gaps in their care. Have they had their flu shot? Do they need their mammogram? Is it time for a pap? And even if you don't necessarily do all those things that day, you're at least keeping track of it. You're reminding patients. So I can only think that these physicians went through an outstanding uh, residency training like I did, and they realized the importance of 
preventative care, which actually is pretty much the main reason that primary care physicians are associated with a decrease in mortality among populations because patients get screened more quickly for cancer because they get their blood pressure under control. So it leads to less heart attacks. So I I think I would have expected to see more uh, similar outcomes among nurse practitioners just because studies have shown that they're very good at education and that they they do communicate well with patients. So uh, I was pleased. I was proud of the doctors to see that they're doing an outstanding job of making sure patients get the care that they need. Pooja, what are your thoughts? Yes, as a radiologist, this all trickles down to us. If patients are you know, managed preventatively, they have great health maintenance by their primary care physicians. We see the effect, you know, downstream, we have patients coming in for lung cancer screening, we have patients coming in appropriate for for their mammograms, you know, all of this culminates to having good health and, and COVID has shown us how important it is to have good health in our communities. I mean, just last month, how many people were out sick and things were shutting down again. So from a radiologist standpoint, you know, we see the, we see all of these appropriate screening come through and that just makes our communities healthier. And influenza is just one example of that preventative care, that health maintenance that all physicians should do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you're saying is so true. And especially when I think about COVID, one of the criticisms that I sometimes hear from people who are not in that much favor of vaccines and things like that. They'll, they'll say, well, you know, patients just need to be healthier. They need to be, they need to lose weight. They need to eat right. They need to exercise. Well, how do you think they're getting that information? It's from their primary care physician. Now I happen to believe in vaccines and, and, and I'm full support of that, but they do have the point that we know that obesity is associated with worse outcomes and, and, you know, lack of sleep and just general health issues. And that's why we really need to return a focus on primary care in this country. We need to reprioritize it. We need to ensure that physicians want to become primary care physicians. And Naran, you've pointed out in this article that you're writing and in what you've said already that why would anybody, I mean, doctors already are not in love with the idea of primary care. They may want to do it, but then the reality is they're going to get paid less. They're going to deal with all the nonsense like prior auths. I mean, it's it's a real headache. And now you're going to potentially pay them less. Yeah. And that's the other side of this coin. You know, anytime, and, and this is true, we're all women, but I, I'm going to be frank about this. When women take over a profession, you know, whatever it is, the pay drops. It, it's not right. It's stupid. I spent a lot of time writing about these issues about, you know, this, uh, this gender kind of gap or problems. So again, what's going to happen when they get pay parity is they're going to pay all of us less. Now, I really am not well paid to begin with, which I, I'm not complaining about. I'm doing fine. But If you now go to school, so my son, my youngest son wants to be a doctor out of all four of my kids. Honestly, they already act like little doctors, which is so cute, but the youngest one's really interested. And I, and I think he would probably do it. He, he loves reading films. He loves coming to work with me. He loves talking over cases. And we talk about him at dinner quite a bit. We do differentials at the dinner table, which I know is a little bit weird, but anyway, he's interested. 
So I think he'll probably do it. But if he's going to come out with $300,000 in loans and he could come out with 100,000 in six years, you know, he's hearing the mistakes that I'm seeing and I'm coming across every day. So I think he would be motivated to do it, but there's not going to be many people that are. Why would you go into this if someone can do it in less time? The point about, Pooja's point about electricians, electricians are highly in demand. They're making six figures. They're earning that money. Obviously, they're working in a high risk job. And so getting full training Training as an electrician, being you know licensed and bonded is worthwhile because you do get paid more than the handyman. If you're going to take that away, eventually we aren't going to have doctors. And I'm telling you, in Washington State alone, I have people coming for a Spokane. That's a six-hour drive. I now I started out with one family. I've got five families now driving across a mountain pass to see me. All that is available in Spokane right now are family nurse practitioners calling themselves pediatricians. And it's fascinating how much this is changing in Eastern Washington. So, so how is this pay parity going to improve our access to physicians in Washington state? It's simply not going to. And the bummer is it's, if it passes, we're just, uh, it's the last nail in the coffin. I think we're going to lose physicians. Well, don't you think Pooja that this may lead to, I mean, we're always talking about like a two-tiered health system. I mean, right now we certainly have our problems, but it feels to me like this is going to turn into one of those situations where the haves and the have-nots, the people that have a little bit of extra money are going to, uh, doctors are going to probably opt out of insurance and opt out of Medicare, which I have done, frankly, and it's for the burdens and all the, the challenges and why it's become so miserable to be a primary care doctor. But don't you think that what's going to happen is that patients are going to pay for physician care and then people that are not able to do that are going to be seeing non-physicians? Absolutely. Uh, the C- I live in the Seattle area, and this area is quite, quite expensive. And I can already see that just when people are buying homes. I mean, it'll be the same thing when we're talking about healthcare. I mean, where where can you even go get physician to be your doctor nowadays? People are going to have to start paying out of pocket if, if there's lack of access to physicians. And I think that we keep hearing about the lack of access to healthcare. And that's that I think is the wrong way to think about things. We have to think about the access to the correct person which would be the physician-led care. And if you take the physicians out of the equation, we will have people who are less trained, less qualified to take care of these complex patients. And remember, we're all going to be patients one day. And we all know that medical care is better when the person with the greatest training leads the team. The physician knows the ins and outs of the body. And it's because of our extensive training. I mean, we understand the pharmacokinetics behind the drugs or the medicine, the pathophysiology behind the disease. It's because of the extensive education. So patients are very highly educated and they will go seek who they can for their care. And if they have to pay out of their pocket, they will do so. And many people can in the Seattle area and many people can't. I don't want that two-tier system. You know, I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth. I, you know, endured hardships too. And I don't think healthcare should be the place where people have to cut corners. Yeah, it really, you know, Naran talked about how Senator Randall is a social justice warrior. You know, she wants to see that. But unfortunately, this is becoming a social justice issue. And it's just really, frankly, an unintended consequence that probably wasn't factored in. Um, just for a minute, I want to talk, you, you mentioned access. And one of the mantras that we often hear from nurse practitioners when they're advocating for things like independent practice or pay parity is that they will fill this gap 
in rural and underserved care. Naran, is that happening? No, it's not. I, I think that's true essentially throughout the country. It, it's not just in Washington state. In, in my state, 11% of physicians work in rural areas and only about 8.6% of nurse practitioners work in a rural zip code. So again, you know, they're helping. I mean, they are helping, but it's it's <laughs> they're not filling the gap. Who's filling the gap are older physicians, um, often foreign medical graduates, which is fantastic because uh, a lot of them were actually trained, you know, on the six-year system and know better anatomy and other things than than I was trained on in, in the United States. And so, again, there, you know, there are physicians that are filling those gaps. It's really hard to be out here with no resources. And I mean, obviously, I'm in a in a medically underserved area. And there's a lot of decisions we make that are different. You know, we get a CBC a little bit earlier. So if the kid's septic, we have time to get them to a, to a tertiary care center, which takes some time. And we just have to be on guard. And, and what happens is now you have people with less training who are less on guard because they don't know any differently um, what can go wrong. And, you know, I'm, I'm reviewing a, a case right now uh, that's been publicized about a kid who died of Kawasaki's um, coronary artery aneurysms nine months, he was nine months after Kawasaki's and he was in heart failure and he was seen by a PA at an urgent care center. And the PA, when you, when you go through the deposition, it's like, well, how much do you know about Kawasaki's? Oh yeah, I don't really know much. Well, how many kids with heart failure have you seen? Oh, none. And, and he had a four week rotation. He's like, yeah, I can be like a doctor. I had four weeks working with children and, and I saw a few inpatients and I saw a few outpatients and it's such a different, I, I like, I, my mind is blown. And, and then he goes on to say, I've been working for two months at this urgent care and I see one or two kids a day. I mean, if you want to talk about what I do when we're talking about kids, that's my only comparison. I see 20 to 25 kids a day for 20 years. Like I, and I still tell you, I don't really know what I'm doing. And, and, you know, I'm reasonably scared of what's coming around the corner as I should be, but you can't do it on one or two kids a day. Like you can't know heart failure. You're going to call it an ear infection and the kid's going to die at home two hours later. Yeah. But again, I, I don't know how you teach patients. I don't know how you get that word out when we have senators who think it's the same care. They believe it's the same. She really believes it's the same care. Well, I mean, I don't know if we have to just tell legislators, well, then from now on, you only get to see a nurse practitioner or a PA for your care. And then, I mean, uh, in jest, but I think that the Hattiesburg Clinic data is very helpful. And I think as we start to show more concrete data and also expose the flaws in some of the propaganda that these legislators are hearing, uh, I'm hoping that that will open some eyes. But I think the money is what's really going to uh, open their eyes. I, well, me too. And Hattiesburg's actually made a change based on the study. I mean, they didn't even want to make the change, but now they will no longer allow independent patient panels for nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And that's really, we've talked about this. That's how it should be all along, not because it's ego, not because we stand to lose money as doctors, but because it is actually safer for patients. One dead child is too many. Two dead children is too many. I mean, we're up to five now. These big cases that I'm hearing about throughout the country, how many more children are going to die unnecessarily for us to stop doing this experiment? And, and I don't know. I well, don't you know, know what you're talking about is team-based care. And we hear that, you know, don't, you know, allow us to uh, to be a part of the team. Yes, let's be a team. Let's work together the way that these professions were designed and patients get exceptional care. It's been shown over and over again, but it has not been shown with independent practice. And I mean, just logically, it makes sense, but we certainly have the data as well. Pooja, in the last couple of minutes, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners about Washington State and pay parity? My hope is that the NP pay parity bill 
does not pass here in Washington state. I hope that the legislators, I hope somebody's listening to this podcast and I'm going to encourage people to listen to it, but I hope that it sheds some light on the issue because this is an issue about patient safety. It's about patient care and not developing a two-tiered system in Washington state. I really am very interested in making sure that all people, as you know, we will all be patients one day, we all get the best care by the best people. And that should be by the person with the highest training. And I hope that um, Washington does not follow the path of Oregon. And we continue to let our physicians know that we understand that physicians have the expertise in medicine, and we want them to lead care in this state. Very well said. Thank you both so much for joining me to discuss this really important topic. If you'd like to learn more about this information, we encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. And if you're a physician, we would love for you to join our group. It's called Physicians for Patient Protection. Our website is physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much. And we'll see you on the next podcast. Mm -hmm.